What is up, Asymmetry? How y'all doing? Finally, finally, David Naus from Apical Ag Solutions, the gentleman we've been working on modifying nutrition in the bonsai container with, took some time out of his busy schedule to sit down with us, and we had ourselves a conversation. It was tremendous, continually enlightening. Uh, new doors open every time I talk to this brilliant individual. And um, it's been a long time in the making to get here, 18 months of trial and error together working on this to try and find uh, a greater understanding of cultivation of bonsai in the confined environment through our choice of soils and how we apply nutrition to continue helping these trees thrive and survive the practice of bonsai. Uh, this one's a mind bender. Sit back, buckle up, relax, and enjoy as David Naus kind of opens our eyes to what's possible in the world of nutrition. Yeah, wow, long time in the making here. Yeah, yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks I for coming up. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 What uh, what do you do? What is your job? <laughs> so I'm the president and founder of Apical Crop Science. Uh, we're a regenerative agriculture consulting firm based out of Canby, Oregon, just south of Portland. And we've been in business since 2016. Our primary specialty is in plant sap analysis. And we have our proprietary version of that, which we refer to as apical leaf extract analysis, or a lot of people just refer to it as apical leaf testing or apical testing. And so that's our uh, main thing that people come to us for. And we use that technology to provide regenerative agronomy services for uh, over 50 crops in, I don't know, going on six or eight countries or something like that at this point. What's regenerative agronomy? So, like, have you have you ever heard of regenerative agriculture? Um, I have heard of it, but I want to know, make sure that I'm thinking that I that I know what it is. Sure. So, um, it's kind of like restoring an old house or historic building, or um, it, it would be akin to that. Like, but doing that in 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 for for agriculture. So, like, say, you know, um, you know, you get married and you go buy a, you know, a 1860s farmhouse in fixer up yeah farmhouse in new england and uh and and you decide well it's got great bones but when we want to we want to fix it and put it all back together you know yeah. kind of. and uh so anyway regenerative agriculture is very similar to that where we take you know depleted soils or difficult to navigate situations or um crops that um, or growers that want to grow crops in a more um sustainable or organic type of way uh, or all of the above and we figure out uh, scientifically a pathway f to help them do that. Mm -hmm. So that's that's essentially what we do. And but regenerative agriculture is broadly the the process of that happening. Now, when when I when I talked with James from is his company Blue Eden or Eden Gold or Blue Gold? I'm I, I'm not quite sure. Eden Solutions. Eden Solutions. Yeah, is 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 actually the name of it. Um, Blue Gold is their uh, is kind of like their uh, technology, and uh -huh. and so like Blue Gold is a surfactant technology that uh, has over 300 ingredients in it, and it utilizes a lot of. Um, Mother Nature's uh, own curative agents and synthesized in one uh, formulation. And so they use that as a as sort of their catch-all um, flagship product to chelate a lot of different um, purposes, right? So they chelate micronutrients with it, or mm -hmm. they use it as a surfactant for mineral basis, or uh, they use it to, to deliver nutrients across cell membranes and uh, various other uh, um, reasons. So. And, and, and does that... 
So what does chelate mean? So essentially you're taking um, two disparate types of molecules and you're joining them together or an atom, um, atomic, you know, an element, and you're attaching it to another type of molecule. Mm -hmm. So um, with the blue gold and, and they essentially build these molecules up um, step by step through, you know, with, through the synthesis of a large number of raw ingredients. That molecule then attaches to whatever they're trying to, you know, formulate per se. And that formulation then has a purpose in regenerative agriculture, typically. Huh. And so does that, when you say it crosses cell membranes, does it cross the, the cuticle through the stomata? Is that It a... really depends on the crop and, and the delivery system and the particle size and uh, solubility, temperature, pH, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of um, uh, issues there. Um, you know, Foliar feeding and foliar nutrition is a is a relatively poorly understood science, although there is a lot of um, really great research out there, but a lot of it hasn't fully been, you know, understood by the scientific community. You know, mm -hmm. plant mom, you know, plants have nanopores, and those nanopores have nanopores, and and so on and so on, all the way down to extremely low subatomic ranges, and and you know, and and oftentimes they have. Um, uh, you know, uh, not necessarily antenna, but root, you know, hairs on the, on the leaves. And each one of those has their own purpose and way that they're supposed to essentially pull, um, you know, do gaseous exchange through the air. Mm -hmm. Um, and that gaseous exchange is a really complex and, and exciting process, but anyway, I'm getting a little bit off track here, but the, keep going, don't the, worry about it. The, the gaseous exchange that plants do through, um, a multitude of, um, uh, pore spaces in their anatomy is of extreme relevance to foliar feeding. And because as, um, minerals either turn to, you know, evaporate or, um, solubilize and, and drip down the plant stem or their, um, or their bark or their wood or what have you, each one of those plant organs has its own um, uh, structure and function and, and capabilities and nuances and so on. And, and so, you know, a lot of people just look at things and say, well, you know, you can't foliar feed X and you'll, it'll, it'll never make it into the plant, but they neglect to, to look at some of those um, uh, subtle differences. And mm. so, you know, with regenerative agriculture and organic agriculture and, and what we do in the field, we're presented with such complex um, and, and difficult to solve problems with, with growers that have huge um, amounts of capital at stake that we have to use all the tools that are available. And, and the number one tool that we use is nature. We use nature um, to fix itself and, and we use um, nature to teach us how to help the plants fix themselves. Mm -hmm. And, and how did you, how did you come to, how did you come to this place of practicing regenerative agriculture in this way? Why did you choose this path? It's interesting. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so I've been involved in, um, you know, some form of regenerative agriculture since I was, you know, about as young as my son, who's about, um, uh, just, he's shy, just shy of three years old. And mm. so, so I've been involved in one form or another, you know, peripherally or, or fully engaged um, for, for most of my life. And, you know, I uh, did a lot of organic gardening as a young kid. I learned how to grow incredible crops in the backyard with very little energy and time and effort. And 
you know, I, I did organic landscaping. I, you know, I ran small farms for, for a number of years and I just built up a knowledge base, um, that was pretty substantial. So then in about 20, 10, 20, I don't know, 29, 2009, 2010, somewhere around there. Um, I got approached by some state agencies and, uh, colleges to, um, help them develop a regenerative agriculture, um, and, and organic agriculture programs for them. And so I did that for a pretty solid about 10 years. Um, and in that time, you know, during the summertime when the school wasn't in session, I would do some, some consulting. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, uh, long story short, the, um, melting pot that was my life essentially produced, um, what we, what we know to not today is apical crop science, which is the, the company that I, that I own and, and started. Um, and so that the, the company is a synthesis of a lifetime of knowledge basically in, in, in organic and regenerative agriculture. But, um, it really took hold like when I was, um, when I would practice consulting during the summers, and I had access to a plethora of, um, you know, academic course uh, um, or academic journals and was forced to develop academic coursework on a yearly basis. And so I was being asked the really hard questions by students simultaneously with, uh, with growers who had their livelihoods at stake. And I realized that there was just a real vacuum that, you know, I had some answers, but I didn't have enough to really dropped the hammer on what needed to be done from an agronomic perspective um, to make these systems repeatable, on-scale, widespread, adoptable, um, implementable, so that they're, you know, um, so that we all have organic food, it's it's low cost and so on. Yeah, I realized that wasn't really the case. It wasn't out there. It's not being done. And I came across some uh, through the, through the academic journals, I came across some, um, uh, research on, uh, these, you know, these plant sap analysis, uh, studies from very, very, very long time ago, but they were disparate and, um, but they were pretty groundbreaking. And so we started experimenting and this was maybe in 20, I don't know, 2013, 2012, somewhere in there. Who's we? Uh, myself and, and some folks that I worked with at the time. Okay. Yeah. And, and some, some of the original who I would call like, you know, um, you know, like some people like start a band and then some of the band original band members quit or something like that. There was uh, various people uh, along the way that that started Apicolb and some of them kind of faded off and went and did other things and you know moved abroad or whatever. So, um, so anyway, uh, during that process, we were you know experimenting um, and we saw some really profound results. Right, like you know the first time you ever apply. Um, you know, you know, a good humic acid w- or a good microbial and see like a very visual plant response in a few days that's remarkable and, and you know, changes the economic outcome of a crop, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, having had the reverse experience over the years where that was a negative outcome where you expected to have a great crop and then you didn't, mm-hmm. um, and then being able to reverse that through some basic experimentation and um, some small data collection with a few handheld meters and some data points and and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Um, once I realized that I could reverse that outcome, uh, that was a huge. I mean, I had all every single light bulb in my head went off and said, "This is what we need to do," mm-hmm. uh, and we really need to to dig into this as as hard as we can. Um, and you know, it was it was really interesting time then. Uh, 
you know, assembling the lab and, and, and pulling together the, the needed equipment and, and expertise and um, experts in the field that could, that could pull it off. That was, that was a huge adventure and, and had a lot of uh, twists and turns. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you have to customize the equipment? Did you have to make your own uh, yeah, equipment? Yeah, or yeah you... in some cases, yeah. There's certain pieces that we definitely had to fabricate on our own, um, definitely. And there's some methodologies. And, and I mean, the whole thing was a very winding pathway and where you thought you'd end up. You know, I originally thought that we would be able to do it in a, in a you know, a mobile um, type, you know, mobile type unit. That was the original goal, actually, was to be able to, you know, come to come to bonsai mira and you know you know take some needles yeah, off yeah, and yeah, sample yeah, yeah. it off. yeah we'll take we'll yeah we'll take a you know we'll take a um you know some sort of star trek device out into the field and <laughs> and uh, we'll be able to you know walk out of here with you know whatever 1500 different racks and yeah. and and then you're done you know i i i wish it was that simple and i wish the technology was there to do that i still do um it would be it'll be, make my job a lot easier and yeah more fun but yeah. um so yeah no we had to do a, I mean, it was a lot of elbow grease getting the, um, uh, you know, getting the, the lab protocols established and repeatable. And, and, you know, and even then, as, as we've talked about, you know, once you have that basics running, um, you know, each crop that you deal with, uh, presents new challenges and new, um, uh, you know, new, um, target ranges that you need to, to, um, adhere to in order to grow a successful crop. So that, it takes a while. So it's been, um, you know, really six year process, seven year process, um, perf- you know, at a, at a commercial scale. And then about, the, you know, that same number of years, um, uh, you know, in R and D prior mm-hmm. to even commercial launch to get where we are today. So quite a bit of time. So you were, <clears throat> you were cultivating things at a very young age. I mean, was this like something that your parents taught you is this something that your grandparent likes to like yeah how how did this happen yeah yeah. so like my so so my grandfather's parents were big farmers and they had a big old farm um and then he was he wasn't super into it but he you know kind of dabbled in it he was more of an engineer and so he kind of dabbled in it but my mom was extremely into uh, organic gardening and organic farming um from the time i was really young so like she had you know, some of the old Rodale press organic gardening magazines from the seventies, um, when they were, you know, that was one of the very first things out there in terms of organic, um, cultivation knowledge that, you know, after the chemical train had kind of left the station. And so she was super into that and that uh, laid the foundation for, you know, our gardening techniques in, you know, in our backyard that Mm -hmm. we, that we did quite a bit of. And, um, you know, it just laid the foundation later on, you know, we never, you know, we moved to the suburbs and we didn't spray our lawn where everybody else in the neighborhood sprayed their lawn. And we'd had, you know, we had grubs for a few, few weeks, but then we limed the soil, pulled a couple dandelions. And then the next year we had the best lawn in the, in the, in the neighborhood. Right. So, you know, I learned that, that, that there was more refuge in, in nature than you could ever imagine. And, um, that, you know, over time I've just accepted that, you know, mother nature is kind of like my teacher and, and you know, just trying to, uh, you know, work with, work within that framework. Yeah. Yeah. James described you as, uh, a barefoot, um, sort of feral soul growing the highest quality produce with no pest and disease That's issues funny. with minimal input. And he said the institutions were like, can you please teach us what you know? That's, I mean, ironically that, I mean, that's not that far from the truth, really. Like I, I mean, you, did you grow up in Oregon? 
I didn't. No, I grew up in upstate New York. Oh, okay. Uh, but I've been uh, doing agriculture in the Pacific Northwest since I was about 23, 23, 20, 23, just upstate shy of 24, New I think. York. So, um, so uh, but yeah, no, that's, it was almost literally the truth. Like I used to farm in bare feet and, um, uh, you know, it was very, just on the fringes of, um, you know, of, of ag land, really not, you know, it's pretty marginal soils that we had enriched significantly with, you know, massive amounts of compost, 200, 300 yards per acre, you know, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. you know, just real major soil shifts. And so obviously, you know, when you're growing, you know, massive cauliflowers and, you know, people just start to take notice after, after a little while. And, and yeah, I mean, there was, um, uh, at a certain point, there was a lot of attention from some of the institutions and they had a real thirst for, for knowledge for a bit and, um, uh, didn't really have a lot of expertise. I still don't, you know, there's very few, um, extremely well-designed organic or regenerative agriculture programs uh, nationwide. It's, it's a real shame. Um, hmm. And why did the, when you say the chemical train left the station, what happened in agriculture where suddenly chemical dependency became the norm and the accepted practice? Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, some people like to get conspiratorial about it, but I, I try not to, I think, um, generally speaking, you know, there was some, um, leftover chemical, um, production equipment, uh, from, uh, from world war two for chemical warfare. So that was one piece. Um, there was, you know, I mean, there is some benefit obviously to the, the Haber Bosch and the, you know, the, the synthesized nitrogen at a low cost and transportability. And I, and I see the, the benefit to that. Um, so, you know, those two pieces are, you know, plausible, I suppose. Uh, but there's, you know, ultimately, you know, a lot of, you know, population growth mm-hmm. and, um, you know, people used to say DDT was good for you and so, some of these other things. And so it's just like anything else, right? Like, you know, when, um, you know, smoke cigarettes used to be good for kids. Right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you learn certain things over time and then you adapt and you go back, well, maybe we should have been stuck with, you know, the advice from our grandparents or whatever. Right. Right. And so, so with modern ag, you know, there's, you know, this confluence of events after world war two, big, big population, all these other things that I just mentioned, but the bigger thing that I have, have really uncovered that, that kind of ties all of this stuff together. And this is one of the things I've been speaking about in um, some of the, the presentations I've been doing lately um, is the fact that um, the, the analytical methods for soil analysis um, that are still in practice today in a large part of the world are actually paired um, like hand in glove with the chemical um with the chemical uh, uh, enrichment protocols. So, you know, and this is something that we've worked to almost, uh, you know, crazying degrees at Apical to, to try to unpack and deconstruct and reconstruct in a regenerative way. Because uh, soil analysis is, is significantly um, difficult in, in a lot of ways um, to standardize and so on. But anyway, the, 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 uh, the analytical methods actually encourage more and more and more chemicals over time. Right. And in the way that they're designed um, through the the harsh acid extraction protocols. And so, you know, when you compare what a, a, a plant actually feeds on versus what the the soil test is actually recommending to you, um, there's a lot of nuances within there that, that are just, that lead to wrong conclusions. And then those wrong conclusions spiral outward into a, 
you know, um, a never ending, um, uh, pile of bad outcomes. Right. Right. So, I mean, you can do the research, you know, on atrazine or you re read about, you know, some of the other things and, and, and various pesticides, uh, around the world. It's, it's, it's a significant issue, food contamination, and it's not getting any better. Um, and it just gets worse, right. As we get further away from the way the system should have been designed with, you know, carbon as the, as the cornerstone of that. And, um, you know, there was, there are some good elements to soil analysis. Don't get me wrong. Um, base saturation cation balancing is a great thing, but in most labs actually do it slightly differently. Um, uh, and some of the way that it's done, if it doesn't include hydrogen and exchangeable, um, acidity, exchangeable acidity, you have, um, much greater potential for um, a wrong proportion of calcium to magnesium in your soil, which uh -huh. then translates into the, uh, uh, it's a probably uh -huh. a pretty, a pretty good segue, I think right there. Uh -huh. Yeah. So, oh man, oh man. Some people are meant to do certain things. It seems that you've found what you're meant to do. There's a, there's a compatibility that is undeniable. It makes sense to you. It just does. I've, you know, my, uh, I've, I've generally been good at complex things over time. Um, there's other things I've done in my life that were, you know, also complex and, you know, just, just farming itself, um, mm. on, uh, on the scale. And you do, you know, the way that I was doing that was, was, is very complex. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, I, when I grew, when I was a heavy grower, I mean, I still grow stuff, but when I was a heavy grower, I, I, cultivating, I don't know, 25 or so crops at once. Right. And each one of them <laughs> specific nutrient right. profile. And I mean, I couldn't even imagine, like, I, honestly, nowadays I'm really just like licking my chops. Like, Hey, I want to go farm again now with these tools. Are you kidding me? Right. Like, what is going to be possible? Like, it's going to be insane. Right. Like, well, that's what I'm thinking is like, Hey, you could now farm and have such a high yield with such a low overhead and produce food at a nutrition level because that's like that's one of the things that i had not thought about is like yeah all of this chemical overhead and chemical contamination and that's one thing but food nutrition nutritional content is shrinking with this massive uptick in chemical inputs so you have less nutrition and more toxicity that's that's a bad equation, mm. right? Yeah. And and so sure. it's like if you can increase nutrition nutritional content and take away the negative content, now all of a sudden like human health, like e ecosystem sustainability, these things now become possible again. And, right. and those have become impossible right. in the in the current and modern yep. methodology. Yep. And so like when you know, it's it's like anything when you see somebody with a skill set and an understanding of knowledge to the degree and depth that you have about regenerative agriculture. It's like, well, man, this knowledge could help so many people. And also, like, where do you choose to put your resources? Because you could be the one growing these things just as easily, and and that could be in itself, you know, something very significant. So it's like, man, how do you make that decision? Yeah, I. It's going to be interesting to see what un unfolds. You know, I how think, old are you? Uh, I'm 45. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, Jeez. yeah, right. I guess they call that the uh, just 
just reaching the top of the hill. <laughs> okay. Uh, you look like you're 20 years old, man. Uh, yeah, well, a lot of organic food, I suppose. I tell you yeah. what, I'm yeah. a believer just yeah. looking at you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the next uh, three to five years, right? So we've spent, uh, you know, like I said, you know, minimum 10 plus years um, of really – uh, trying to find out what this, how to, how to do what we do to making it you know systematically implementable on scale, mm-hmm. um, and now that the technology has reached a certain degree of maturity, like you said, there's a whole bunch of different use cases. It's 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 not a, not a day goes by when we almost don't identify a new way that we can utilize the apical method and the apical technology that we're unpacking for, for a lot of different people. You could use it as risk management, you know, obviously just heal farms, produce better, better crops, you know, reduce pesticide usage, save natural resources. I mean, it just, you know, it, it, it almost sounds unbelievable and too good to be true and this, that, and the other thing. And, and if I didn't know myself or if I hadn't experienced what I've experienced, I might think it was all BS too, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, uh, but having seen, you know, crops literally, you know, at death's doorstep, like, you know, do a complete hundred and, you know, 180 and, um, you know, do it repeatedly and, and with, with, syst- you know, systematic precision is, is, I mean, it's a huge privilege and we're, we're just really lucky to have found, um, what we're capable of doing with it. Um, and so now it's just, okay, well, how do, like you said, how do you, you know, how do you unpack it to uh, in its, in its highest form, you know? Yeah. And, and, um, so we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Do you still have people that are like, you're full of shit? Oh, every day. Really? Oh yeah. Every day, every day. Uh-huh. No, I mean, not every single day, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but a lot of days, you know, a lot, a, a lot of days, right. There's, That's funny. uh, people, they, it's one of those things until they've experienced it, they're going to be skeptical. Yeah. Um, I was skeptical. I was super skeptical. Sure. Skeptical. Yeah, yeah. So was I. I mean, but I've been sold, <laughs> I've been sold the witch's brew so many times. And, and that's was, the reason. And that's the issue, right? I, Everybody has had that same experience. Yeah. Right. Um, and you know, I was, you know, I, I, I never even bought witch's brew. Right. I just was like, ah, whatever. All that's nonsense, mm-hmm. you know, until I face planted publicly. Right. And like, you know, at a, very large public crop failure is when I was, you know, you know, had very well-known clients and, and, you know, and students. Right. And that was, oh yeah, yeah. We can't really talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Was that the tomato incident? Yeah. I think I probably told told you that. That was, yeah, that was, that was like the main one. There was always like little ones, right? Like, you know, like nagging little things at the back of my mind, like, oh, like we would plant like, you know, you know, 27 different varieties of lettuce and five would suck, you know, and five would bolt and it would never, and that would be 20% of the crop. And that would like ah, chip away at your pocketbook. And you're like, oh, damn, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it, you know, it kind of snowballed into that, you know, the tomato incident that I kind of referred to. I think I've told you that story before. And, um, and, you know, that was a, I mean, it was, it's a gut punch, you know, and, and you have a pile of money just gone and you don't know why. I mean, it's just like, you know, it's, it's worse than like, you know, um, uh, you know, having something like just ripped out of your grass, like a pet or something like that, you know, because you don't know what went wrong. You don't know how to fix it. You don't know. Yeah. And you're super gun shy and you're, and you, and, and you get timid and you get, you get afraid and you fall back on, uh, into bad habits. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and that's like what a lot of growers that we, 
um, have, have, have worked with, that's what they do when they, when the going gets tough, they, they go, you know, they fall back and ah, we're going to go back to conventional or we're going to do this or that. And, um, it's usually the time when you have to double down on, on data and regenerative practices. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we hit that, we hit that threshold. Um, certainly, uh, I mean, we hit that threshold because, you know, we had tried the compost extract in, in, in the application of bonsai and, and it wasn't a wrong idea. I think what no, I've learned from talking with you, like it actually has applicability, but the, the odd nuances of the containerized environment and the concentration primarily seem to be, we just dumped like 200 times the concentration in there and said like, I hope this goes well. Yeah, right. <laughs> it didn't go well. It didn't go well. Right. Yeah. Some of the, so, you know, I mean, compost has, is, is known for raising EC and, um, uh, you know, uh, it can have salts and potassium and, and maybe not a lot of calcium and maybe some chloride and, and some of these things which are, you know, typically depleted in soils. Right. And, mm-hmm. and so, so yeah, I mean, compost is great. And like, you know, I, for years relied almost exclusively on compost and like some manures and a few other, you know, odds and ends, rock powders and stuff. But, um, in certain situations I learned, uh, when I had to farm in low organic matter environments, looser soils, uh, sandier soils, um, soils that didn't have a lot of structure to them. Um, you know, your salt content can become problematic very, very quickly. And, uh, and you know, with bonsai, you have relatively, you know, plants that are generally not thought of as going to be, have almost any salt tolerance, right? They're coming from the forest, which is the opposite of a salty environment usually. And they're, you know, and then you're potentially having some salt um, induced into that environment, introduced into that environment. That's, um, yeah, it's unfortunate that, you know, um, it wasn't done a little bit more, just a little bit. Yeah. 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 Yeah, But it wasn't, it wasn't the wrong idea, you know? Absolutely not. No, no. And so when you came on, I mean, we, I, 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 at that point, you know, like I was at a point where, and, and I'll just walk everybody listening through my, my journey, you know, apprenticing for six years with Mr. Kimura in Japan, I was the main chemical applicator in his nursery, which means that, you know, at any at any time it was a tank mix of a fungicide and insecticide and you know, some other stuff that who knows what it was at times I knew what it was and it was super scary. And I had gone to, I had a bachelor's in horticulture and I took one class on chemical application of how to not die, you know, applying chemicals basically. (laughs) And like, you know, that, that maybe, maybe helped me a little bit, but it's just like, the 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 continual application and the the dependency i mean it was like spring yeah. comes everything's coming to life and it's just like ah oh, celebration of bonsai and then it's like mix up the tank of chemicals yeah. let's douse them you know and yeah freaking dead birds and dead animals and dead uh, fish yeah. and dead insects everywhere and it's just like this this can't be the way yeah and yeah. i came back to the united states and you know like Phomopsis on Rocky Mountain junipers and and Dothostroma on Ponderosa pines and uh, Swiss needle cast on Doug fir and Rhizosphera on Colorado blue spruce and I'm just like oh my god what sh- what have I got myself into you know and I'm in the middle of a forest here and 
people are coming and saying, well, you have so much biological inoculant that you can't, you know, <laughs> avoid it and stuff. Right. And I'm like, God, I thought this was supposed to be the better place to cultivate things. I mean, it was a real, it was a real, uh, backbreaker, you know, just in terms of like a spirit buster. Right. Um, and I didn't have a solution and I was, and, and I was, in, I was getting a lot of growth, but I had to manage it through chemicals. And then I stopped getting that growth. And right. I started looking at my plants and I wasn't getting the back budding and I wasn't getting the, the, I, it was very clear. I was on a path that had no sustainability because growth was getting longer and longer and it wasn't getting vi more and more vigorous and it wasn't creating uh, alternatives in the future for me. And then once that tip of that growth started going necrotic, that was really a moment where I was like, oh shit. You know, because now, like my the only growth that I had to lean on was now becoming something problematic, right? You know, and 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 I'd always thought that the next evolution in bonsai, because my master had really catalyzed an aesthetic uh, movement, a modernization of the bonsai form and concept, radical techniques, engineering applied to bonsai like nobody had ever seen, and he had. A horticultural background that nobody really ever understood and he never talked about it he just did these things and they worked for him but he was leaning on chemical control through his cultivation sure. tactics but it gave him results so there's nothing for him to really change in his mind but i wasn't getting those same results here um right and 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 i and i needed to come up with a solution because i didn't want to keep spraying chemicals you know, I had a kid that I wanted to have a safe environment for him to grow up here. I didn't want to contribute to the continual demise of honeybees and birds and, you know, invertebrates and the whole thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but when I got that, when I started getting that necrotic tip and I didn't have an, I didn't have a way out, then it was like, now I, now I do need to find a solution. And so, you know, I started looking long and hard and it's like, I talked to, you know, testing labs and I had samples of soils and water and, and foliar masses and, and solutions being thrown at me that when I was trying them were just making things worse and worse and worse. <laughs> and then you came yeah. up here kind of at like the trough of it all. Mm -hmm. And yeah. you looked at it and you said, this soil is shit. <laughs> and, uh, and that was kind of the beginning because again, I thought the next aesthetic evolution of bonsai would be a technique or it'd be an idea. Right. But I started to recognize that soils might be a part of that or more importantly, what I've come to recognize is actually nutrition yeah. is probably the most important thing. And this is really where like, I think you're in my conversation as we've been through 18 months together. And, you know, I don't know how you feel about the garden as you come up here, but but it does seem to me that you seem to look at it and say, yeah, no, things are, things are oh it's 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 visibly obvious yeah. that it's um from i guess the first visit that i had out here which was a little over a year ago i mean it's night and day night and day night, night and day yeah night and day mm -hmm. uh yeah anybody who's come to the garden has been like you know a year ago my students were like i don't know about this <laughs> you know and uh, the yeah. last the, you know the students that have been here over the course of i would say like late spring they've been like I'm sorry that we doubted you, you know, and it's right. like, doubt of me. And I gave you every reason to doubt me. I sure. didn't have an answer. Just like you're saying, you felt powerless without yeah, that yeah. solution. It's yeah. like, I can't lean on the horticultural practices of Japan that I learned in my apprenticeship anymore. Cause they're not solving the problem. Right. So now I've got to figure out something else. And in fact, this better be better 
because the solutions and the path that we were on were not going towards a better direction. They were getting worse, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. chemicals are less available and yeah, and the, more expensive, and more, and more toxic, and there's more resistance. Absolutely. And, yeah. 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 And so, you know, like the discussion of Akadama as, as a primary backbone, like you were the one who kind of cracked the code for me. You know, we had it analyzed. We looked at it under electron microscopes. We know the tubular structure. We understand it's in the, you know, uh, sort of an outlying region of volcanic activity with specific elements that take place. We've mapped the Cascades. We know it's present here. We know mm -hmm. it's present in Japan. There's only a few regions where shot soil is actually present. And, you know, we thought, okay, so the clay structure, you've got this essentially hydroponic system in a shallow containerized environment that you're growing a conifer and so you're growing basically a conifer hydroponically more or less right mm -hmm. yeah nakadama's seven to ten percent organic matter basically benefits the condition of the tree by having some nutritional cation exchange sites but but the thing that i couldn't quantify is why do the roots scale in akadama mm -hmm. because if you grow a conifer in you know uh say common nursery mix you're gonna get some pockets of fine roots, but you're going to have primarily fairly coarse roots and you're trying to grow that tree big. Mm -hmm. But we're not trying to grow a tree big. We're trying to right. grow a tree small. We're right. trying to reduce proportion, shrink internodes, reduce the needle size, right? Mm -hmm. And that scalability of that root system, the, the, the creation of finer and finer bifurcating roots is something that Akadama did for us that nobody could explain. And I'm thinking, okay, this is tubular structure. This is the roots self-scaling the Akadama, which creates a surface area of water availability and oxygen content, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. If it's quality Akadama, if it mm -hmm. doesn't passively decompose, mm -hmm. right? Because clay does passively decompose. Right, right. Akadama at the highest quality should not. Now, that's not to say it doesn't because biology creeped into this there whole thing go. with the compost, yeah. right? Uh -huh. Which is part of this conversation. But uh, it you were the one that said, dude, your manganese is through the roof. These trees should be dead. <laughs> and then I said, what does manganese do? And you said it causes the inner so node to manganese? shrink. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> it causes, I know that it's not good in the ceramics community. You know, I know that sure. that's a, but it's, but you said it causes inner nodes to shrink. Like you can control inner node length. You mean through. magnesium? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was yeah. just like, what are you talking about? And yeah. then you're like, yeah, and, and shot soil is high in, in manganese. And and I'm thinking, okay, so the bonsai practice is to reduce the growth rate and the proportions of the tree. And everybody thought it was this container. But in all actuality, you know, the Japanese broke through with bonsai because they lived in a volcanic, they lived on a volcanic island and they used the resources available. And that happened, the only structural organic component that could allow them to cultivate trees in these shallow pots was Akadama. Right. It was just a, it was just a, a, a resource availability. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it created the highest level of an aesthetic art form. Yeah. They call that, you know, a little bit more than dumb luck, I guess. Right. Or, <laughs> I guess. Serendipity. Know, smart luck. Yeah. Come on. Serendipity. Yeah. Smart luck. No, it's, it's, <laughs> uh, it's fascinating to, to have unpacked that with you last year. Um, because I mean, you know, like, you didn't, like un I, you didn't but, unpack it with me, you unpacked it. And then I was like, thank, thank you well, so I, much. Yeah, but, it, but the back and forth, it, you know, that's, I mean, that's what Apical is all about though. It's the relationships that we build with our clients and our, and the growers that, that we work with that it's that free flow of information to the, to the, you know, from the scientific community, the lab, i.e. Um, back to the growers that, that is the most enriching in both directions. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know anything about bonsai cultivation, Right, like 
I mean, I almost nothing um, before I met you. And right. so, you know, like, like I said, when, when we got started, I was like, ah, can't guarantee anything, but we'll do the best we can. Uh, I've never seen the technology fail before. So, right. um, uh, it's really, it's really been a lot of fun to, 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 to learn some of these nuances and, you know, the whys of how these plants can survive in those, you know, in those pots. And, um, but, you know, circling back on the point about, you know, about your master, you know, the, you know, if you ever, um, I don't know if he's still alive or not, but, yeah. you know, you might just pose the, the, you know, the question at some point, and this is the question that I asked myself, right. Is, okay, well, you know, what about, you know, the, the Sierra juniper that's in the natural environment? Does it require all this chemical intake in order to, to survive? Right. And so, you know, like you said, you know, the next, you know, sort of frontier in terms of cultivation is that's, that's really where it is, where, where you use mother nature as its own fortification system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the things that I've wanted to talk to you about for a long time, because the, the consistent question that somebody is going to ask is, okay, all right, David, you think that here goes the skeptics. Well, yeah. yeah well, yeah. yeah. And sure. I, I, I mean, I, I needed this answered yeah. for myself yeah. too yeah. from you, and you and it and it took <laughs> almost eighteen months for you to just. I needed it, and I needed you to to write it to me. Like I, I, I didn't need it to be hypothesized. I needed you to say, "This is why. Why are the Japanese able to cultivate such such lush, dense, healthy trees if Akadama is bad?" And you said. You know, and it's not that Akadama is bad. It's if, not bad. If no, no. Ha is 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 contributing to some of the horticultural problems, and you said it's because they're using ionized fertilizers and chemicals to manage the 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 product of ionized fertilizers. Am I correct in that? Yeah. So they're get, essentially they're getting the benefits of the Akadama without the the negative impact. Uh huh. Right. And so the negative impact would be the biological release and of that you know, of that tubular structure and collapse, like we talked about. Um, uh, can, can we explain that? So basically what your theory was, we put the compost extract in, we inoculated with an immense amount of biology. Right. It filled the tubular structure of the Akadama, mm -hmm. caused a massive decomposition of the Akadama particles and just dumped manganese into the soil system. Yeah, manganese, aluminum, you know, um, primarily those two. And, um, you know, led to, a, to maybe a lesser degree, a collapse of the, of the clay structure. Right. And so, you know, the desirable aspect of, of, of the, your growing, you know, part of the growing media was, was now had become undesirable, uh, anaerobic and uh, potentially toxic to the, to the plant root. Right. Um, but to deconstruct all that, I mean, how, you know, yeah. I mean, you can look at it and just say, oh, that's what's going on. Right. Um, <laughs> it took it, you know, it takes that ability to uh, correlate the qualitative aspects of, of, you know, the visual appearance of the plant with the quantitative aspects of the data sets that, that we're pulling through the lab in order to really make that, those, those, those connections. Yeah. Um, and, and also with, you know, um, knowing, you know, like you said, what you were looking for and the reason that you used Akadama as well as combined with the knowledge that we bring to the table in terms of like, okay, yeah, we know that manganese reduces internode spacing. And when it's in excess, it will reduce internode spacing, basically negative. To the point where <laughs> the, the plant point, yeah, the goes, becomes necrotic. Yeah, so exactly. I just yeah. had like massive, yeah, they just like got so small that they just like almost yeah. started, well, they were dying back. They were going backwards. <laughs> exactly. I was losing internodes. Uh, 
but but I want to come back to this because because I do think I do think that this was a major breakthrough for me to 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 accept what was being what what you were teaching me and what I was learning um, from the perspective that like when you use an ionic fertilizer is that an yeah just yeah soluble ionic fertilizer soluble ionic fertilizer basically does a soluble ionic fertilizer mean that it is that the nitrogen resource is going to be ammonium based no not necessarily um there's there's a lot of different you know soluble you know soluble phosphates and soluble nitrates and and so on um but the difference between those and organic is first of all no carbon Mm-hmm. Right. And so the carbon is, you know, breeds a little bit more persistence and, you know, you're dealing with relatively high carbon, um, uh, desired, desiring plants. Right. And so, you know, if you're pushing those with, with a lot of nitrogen, you know, you'll push that carbon and nitrogen ratio out of balance. Mm-hmm. And so you will get growth, but it comes at a cost it, because the growth isn't balanced growth. And because you don't have the, the full molecule synthesis, you don't have the carbon um, um, uh, molecules to, to adhere to some of the, the amino acids. And so they become simpler, um, simpler structures instead of more complex ones. And so uh, without carbon in that so- soil, or if you're constantly feeding, that's where that's that's the root cause of why the those the conventional systems require you get great growth. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, but they also require constant fungicide, insecticide, and and you know potentially other um, toxic chemicals, nematicide, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that is to me a huge problem, right? Um, from a lot of different levels, because first of all fundamentally it's just nature mother nature's telling you hey 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 this is a hundred this is wrong guys this is wrong wrong right but but you know we've gone 70 years down that road where you know there's like a couple of little um you know pockets that have that have drifted off of that path but the 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 broad path has been 70 years down that down that pathway and you know it brings us a lot of population growth and this that that and the other thing but at a cost right and and you know we see it within our own you know populations and environment and so on and so um you know circling back on the soil testing thing i mean if you know if you just really understand a little bit of carbon chemistry Mm -hmm. um it's amazing like what starts to happen you don't even need to really understand it just use it a little bit right and and so you know it's our position that you know if you introduce carbon and almost every time you're using a fertilizer application even if it's an ionic one you're gonna you're gonna be that much further ahead yeah um but you know when we're looking at you know something like creating a a long-term resilient plant that you're that you're building from the inside out from the roots you know from the roots all the way up through that whole plant that's a little bit of a different ballgame. That requires, you know, a bit more precision, mm-hmm. right? And like like we've been um, learning together um, in the last uh, eighteen months on on these bonsai, it, it, there's some some nuances there to both Big nuances. Yeah, yeah, from from species to species, and and um, and and more. Um, so yeah. So, and I want to stay on the ionic fertilizer because I, I just have so much. So like, um, yeah. say for example, we, we, we sampled biogold, right? Mm. And you and I were talking about biogold specifically out there and we're saying, listen, the, the nitrogen source is ammonium. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the, or, or the form of nitrogen is ammonium, right? And typically in, 
in solid agronomy, you would desire the most oxidized form of nitrogen. Am I correct in that? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. I mean, a lot of the, uh, um, you know, coniferous types, you know, your low pH soils, um, you know, forest floor, things like that, you know, those will, that's, you know, technically speaking, there's a lot of ammonium availability okay. out there and they like a lot of hydrogen. So, you know, your, your bio gold, I mean, that's, I, it's understandable that, you know, you know, like a blueberry or whatever, you know, some of these lower pH type uh, loving plants, acidic loving, you know, they like that, that, uh, um, um, you know, ammo ammoniacal form of nitrogen. The, there's other ways to go about yeah. getting nitrogen to the plant. Um, and, uh, but the bio gold, as we've realized over time is there's a couple other little nuances to it that, that yes, aren't, are. aren't as advertised that are obviously beneficial to your system. Right. Right. Um, and we're going to come back to that, but I just want to take a tangent because I knew in dissecting this, you'd start to drop gems on us. Okay. So you just touched on something that's super important that you and I sort of, we breached the subject of it today, but pH and the desired pH of the plants and talking about, um, and you, and, and, and I've been trying to piece this together ever since you, cause you say these things. And then I sit there and I think about them for the next three months and until we talk again. Okay. Japan is a, Japan is an Island nation. Japan has a major monsoon season. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> and all of the native plants to Japan are growing, with that monsoon impact on the island, as well as a as well as a very significant amount of moisture over the winter, so you have two major moisture moments, right? It is not a drought ridden island. It mm -hmm. is not a drought ridden mm -hmm. landmass, right? Okay. Uh, when you said, and I asked you this in the very beginning, and and you said, I don't know, man, maybe there's something in the monsoons or something, and I've like been thinking about that, and I'm like, and you're like, maybe the monsoons flush the toxicity or something. Maybe that's why this works for them in Japan, and it doesn't. What you just said just keyed it because Japan is an acidic soil in inherently by the amount of rainfall that it receives over two major wet periods in the year. Right, the Pacific Northwest is a fairly acidic environment because mm -hmm. of the amount of rain that we have. Why in bonsai in North America do the same things that you would do to a Japanese tree in Japan not apply? Because the majority of the material are coming from dry, arid, high desert environments. Mm. And that is a major thing that you just helped me crack just now. Interesting. So you're, you mean you're taking the Akadama in the u.s from high desert but in japan it's it's uh, from a more no the akadama comes from japan that we use in the united states okay. but the japanese are feeding with a hot with a low ph high acidic mm. fertilizer gotcha. in, in, with but here's the thing with species that are adapted to that and so we're saying listen why does a black pine why does a red pine why does a white pine why does a shimpaku juniper from japan why are all of these trees responding to this manner of fertilization, yes, it creates a susceptibility to disease and pest, right? And they're managing it through chemicals and that's not sustainable. But why are the trees still lush? And what right. you and I have been talking about out here is everybody's pushing for a more acidic pH, more acidic pH, more acidic pH. You're telling me, I think you might need to raise the pH in these trees. You might have too acidic of a pH. The potassium, you know, can... In the soil. In, in, in the soil. Ex yeah. yeah, exactly. But, but if... If Japanese fertilizers, watering methodologies 
are creating acidity in the soil and mm-hmm. they're dealing with native plant species, mother nature adapted to that native environment. Uh, then they are then they are working hand in hand even though they're creating susceptibility through ionic fertilizers. Yeah. But if we're using high desert higher pH species species I and see we're the putting, species is the difference. Yeah. The species, you gotcha. know, and that's what you said. You're like, "Oh yeah, what did you say about these arid environment? They're not they're they're not functioning on an acidic pH. You said something. There's like yeah, a, yeah, yeah. A lot of those. Uh, I mean, you know, just drive over, you know, take two hour drive uh, wet or due east, mm-hmm. and get over to the other side of the Cascades. Take out a pH meter, stick it in the ground. Um, you'll be up um, typically close to seven and higher. Um, whereas if you do the same thing around here, your pH will range, you know, to anywhere from like four nine to, you know. Six six two or yeah. something like that. Yeah. So if you're taking, yeah, I mean, a, you know, Sierra Nevadas, I mean, that's higher pH, uh, more arid, more weathered environment, higher salt, um, things like that. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, if yeah. that if the that, Rocky Mountains would be the same. I mean, so effectively, and I saw this. Yeah, Rocky Mountains. I think they've got some some relatively weathered soils there too, um, and they're probably a little bit higher pH. I don't work a ton in the raw soils of the Rockies, but. It, um, what I do remember, it's very similar to some of the, the Eastern Oregon terrain. And so what we saw was when we took sagebrush and we treated it with the calcium phosphorus carbon treatments that we've been using to lower the manganese and aluminum levels, mm. right? Yeah. We saw those plants collapse. Oh, they, right. just, they just they just <laughs> absolutely crapped the bed. We'll go hit them with, the, uh, you know, just the calcilicate by itself maybe or something like that and right. really just jack the pH up. And well, in fact, you might even want to... Uh, Ironically enough, I was thinking this is something I didn't mention when I was out there poking around, but you may want to uh, raise the salt content of the soil um, because think about it, right? So sage, it it operates in a natural environment, grows like gangbusters where there's very high salt content and nothing else will grow. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I just put, you know. I just put bio back on the sage and they started growing. There you again. Go. So yeah. it's like, you know, this is really interesting <laughs> stuff right here because, because in Europe, they're going to have different scenarios and different issues, mm. especially in Europe, in the Mediterranean regions, right. the Mediterranean regions of the world are some of the most productive native landscapes for plant species anywhere you know you're talking about table mountain and in, in, in cape town south africa having more species of plants than the entire uk combined right on, on a very small surface you know land at mass i've walked it it's amazing and it's like geez you know and yet you cannot cultivate bonsai in mediterranean regions to save your life unless you're cultivating an olive you know, a, a, a cork oak yeah. or, or, or a rosemary. And even a rosemary is iffy. So you're like, well, shit, you know, like this is challenging, but yet this is such a rich growing ground. It's optimal climate. Why? And it's all of these nuances. It, it, it comes down to this. I'm, right. And so trying to untie, to reduce the skepticism or explain what would be, what somebody could be skeptical about through nutrition being changed from the Japanese model, I had to be able to explain why does it work for the Japanese model? And that didn't come together until today. We've been like, we've been like edging mm-hmm. towards mm-hmm. it, you know, mm-hmm. but, right. but, but it really came together with what you just said after what we had just talked about. And I find that that is how I'm learning from you the most is you just say something off the cuff and it's like, yeah, 
you know, and it marinates and it resonates. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's probably the, uh, um, the, the benefit and the, and the, the drawback of, uh, you know, spending so much time away from, you know, um, you know, public speaking and things like that, trying to actually work in the field. A lot of that knowledge is just, um, you know, just kind of bubbles up at the right time. And, and if you're not there, you'll miss it. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. But but when you're working, like you don't know the the nutrient profiles that any of these plants optimally need to exist in. When we get started in them, yeah, no, I mean you you know nothing no, no, about no. bonsai. You know you've never no. tested Rocky Mountain juniper. No, no you don't I, know. I didn't even know what it was. Right. I mean, I knew. I mean, I know what juniper is. And, sure. But I couldn't have told you the difference between a Rocky and a Sierra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then, so then, I think this takes me to sort of the next thing you know that you and I have been discussing, and James really pressed pressed upon this in his podcast he said uh uh what did he say not toxicities but uh not excesses excesses yeah, are killing yeah. the yield excesses deficiencies and excesses are killing the, killing the yield yeah it's not really deficiencies i mean everybody thinks it is but it's really the excesses and and it's not just killing the yield i mean it's um there's a presentation that we that i gave about a year or so ago a couple of times called the 10 principles of nature um and it, and it really goes into detail about the problem of excesses. Um, and the, you know, it starts out, you know, um, you know, plants have plants in nature thrive without any, you know, human interference, don't have insects, don't, you know, kind of like we we're just uh, kind of talking about. And, you know, it goes through, you know, if you have an excess, this is what happens and so on and so on. And, and ultimately, you know, what happens when you have an excess is the plant has to work a lot harder to balance that excess, right? And so think about it. Um, I've been really, you know, I spent a lot of time in the car. And so it's, I've been lately really trying to think about the best ways um, to unpack what we've learned for, um, you know, the lay person, the lay audience, right? And, and, and the best way I can describe it is, you know, um, how many people do you know don't have enough to eat? Personally, no. Yeah, I don't know anybody. How many people do you know that, you know, and you can just say it in a percentage basis so it doesn't, you know, you don't get you in trouble, um, uh, that you would say um, eat too much at least one thing or another or or maybe many things. Yeah, the majority of people that I know. There you go. So right there, you just unpacked why excesses are so crucial to understand. But I'll take it a few steps further. So when you have an excess... Um, at a personal level, what might you do? You might have to exercise. You might have to, you know, um, you know, drink extra water. You know, you know, change your behavior, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, say you're a plant and you can't move around. You mm -hmm. can't get up and, and run. You can't do this. You can't do that. So, what are your options? Right? You can't detox because you're going to be. You're, you've got an owner that's continuing to pound you with, you know, fertilizers that you know you can't really consume. So all you're going to be able to do is try to balance out your life and make the best of it, right? So like, you know, say tomorrow I'm walking down the street and somebody cuts off my right hand, I'm going to have to make the best of it. So I'm going to have to learn how to be left-handed, right? And so I'm going to have to balance out my my left hand, my, right. you know, so it's no, plant's no different, right? So if you have an excess, whether it's sodium or chloride or calcium, for that matter, it doesn't really make a difference, nitrogen, any of them, the plant is going to naturally... Um, through its own homeostatic processes, uh, counterbalance uh, to the best of its ability um, uh, that overabundance. 
and it does this through ratios, right? So, um, you know, most plants will have, you know, get healthier and healthier as their ratios get more and more optimal. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen that and in, in there's some pretty key ratios that, that, that do this. But the, the bigger thing is that, um, say you have, for instance, a sodium excess in a plant. The plant is going to pick it's a, you know, what element it, it also has, it's also an overabundance and that's going to try to consume as much of that to balance out the sodium, right? So, you know, for like a person, you know, if you're eating too much salt, the, you know, the, okay, yeah, the plant, the body's, body's going to want to hold on to more calcium and, and what's that going to do, right? It's going to slowly and slowly, it's going to bind your, you know, it's going to create binding and, and more um, calcification of your of your digestive tract and your organs and your, um, and your, your vascular, your cardiovascular system. So in a plant, it's no different. The, um, your, the plant's going to try to intake additional amounts of calcium to counterbalance that sodium. The reason this is so crucial is because we have a huge problem in this country and across the world of soil depletion, soil erosion, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. By pouring more and more fertilizer out, those excesses get, you know, compacted, you know, magnified, tripled, gone exponential. And as that's done, the plants either get more like exponentially, you know, less healthy and more sick, or the soil gets more sick or both, or humans and the soil and the plants all get sick. Wow. Right. And so, so, (laughs) you know, um, it, you know, like I said, super blessed and, and privileged to be able to unpack some of this stuff. But like looking at data sets for, you know, for about five years was when things started to click where we would see um, a relatively healthy looking um, uh, a blueberry plant with 60 parts per million of sodium and 600 parts per million of, uh, of calcium right in one soil environment. And then you t- go to another soil environment and you see another one where the, the, the the plant has um uh, uh you know 300 parts per million sodium and 3000 parts per million calcium and it's just transferred it's just basically transcribed that ratio into uh into a different growing environment but this other growing environment is requiring you know a 10x you know amount of calcium yes, to counter yes, the sodium correct yeah. correct yeah right. and so so that's just problematic from a, a perspective of soil depletion and, and resource depletion and the interesting thing that we've also realized too is that you know as you know plants don't necessarily need more nutrition inside they they like balanced nutrition and when they have balanced nutrition they develop these um uh you know bioactive compounds which are defense capable right so if you've got relatively low levels of nutrition, but a lot of carbon availability, the plants will be completely immune to, to insects, disease, and, and, you know, and pests really. Yeah. So it's really about carbon getting that into the plant and then keeping all the rest of everything else balanced. Um, that's more the name of the game than trying to like, you know, get the nutrition up as high as possible. So when you have those excesses though, like for example, <clears throat> And I guess this comes back to like looking at bio gold. It's like one of the nuances of bio gold is that it seems to be very rich in calcium. Mm-hmm. And the calcium magnesium ratio seems to be a very pertinent ratio yeah. in successful bone site cultivation, probably plant health in general. A lot of, yeah, generally, yeah. Right, mm-hmm. but soil health, yeah. In general, 
you need more calcium than magnesium. And in fact, you'd love to have what a two to one calcium magnesium. I mean, it depends on what kind of test you're looking at. Uh Um, you know, any, you know, in, inside the plant. Yeah. A couple two to one is, is a nice for, for, for generally speaking, apical sap test, right? Yeah. Generally speaking, you know, two to one. I mean, there's some, there's some nuances. Certain crops are different. Um, uh, but yeah, two to one on the on the plant, and then you know, in some cases, depending on the soil method, you might be, you know, anywhere from five to eight to one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because when you analyze the soil, when we tested the soil for Akadama and the Akadama pumice lava mixture, which is the accepted bonsai cultivation soil of the world, you know, based off of the Japanese model, the soil test did not show that it was high in aluminum off off the get-go. It did not show that it was high in magnesium off of the get-go. It did show that it was high in manganese, mm-hmm. right? Right. But then once we started cultivating plants in it, well, I'm not applying magnesium. Right. I'm not applying aluminum. Right. And yet suddenly you're cultivating a plant in Akadama and you see the aluminum levels rise. You see the magnesium levels rise. And there's not any calcium available there. And all of a sudden you're already off sort of off kilter off balance yeah right and so like one of the sort of stalwarts like one of the the pillars of japanese bonsai is the aggression of their fertilization aggressive fertilization i mean they are fertilizing when you when i used to look at japanese bonsai magazines the the amount of fertilizer that was on this small little containerized plant was shocking to me mm-hmm. and we never fertilized that in the united states and our bonsai were never very healthy and then suddenly you know people start fertilizing more and using the same things and like things are happening but over the course of time it, it, it sort of has led to the same thing which is like right. there's disease and insect susceptibility persistent and, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and so it's like you know the the question that I have for you is is you know as a, a as somebody who is assessing this on a level that is far beyond where I'm ever going to be able to 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 understand these systems, the miniaturizing capacity of Akadama, the scaling effect that produces the fine root system that supports a density of foliar mass per cubic inch that is very unnatural and you would never see in mother nature mm-hmm. right that we're creating to 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 generate an aesthetic sense of scale and proportion can you move away from akadama and accomplish that <laughs> having never grown bonsai the i think the answer would be i'm not sure uh-huh. uh, that's the appropriate answer uh-huh. There. Uh-huh. but you keep pushing me away you're saying like look the soil is the problem well if you not, really want and and, and we're no, recognizing but, but, too there's but, a disconnect but, of species here. right but but qualifying that with um i'm not saying that this that the soil is a hundred percent of the problem uh-huh. i'm just saying that hey if we're always applying calcium maybe we should get a little more in the soil so you don't have to go out there every couple of days and apply something. That's that's all I, I mean. That's what it means, would take. Come, that's what it would right, take. That's right. what we're learning yeah, it would take, right? Yeah. If I take my foot off the gas of calcium, sure. then, uh, then I see a slight shift in behavior. Now, there's a perpetuation of the biology that I put into the containers, but we're seeing the same issues with trees that I put into cultivation. And here's the thing that I want to make clear to everybody listening. The trees aren't unhealthy. By the American standard of bonsai, the trees would be considered pretty robust and pretty like they're doing just fine, right? Yeah, and they it, look good out there. And if I and if I'm feeding with an ionic fertilizer that bypasses the biological barrier and sort of just you know I've got a gaseous form of nitrogen and it's pump full and the plant can produce green growth and 
if I'm willing to manage that chemically, like uh, I've got a high calcium content and bio gold that sort of maintains the ratio that seems to really, that seems to really sort of generate some resistance or at least some sustainability. Mm -hmm. But the pH, the pH factor is also leading to more metal uptake as well. And that's a problem, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, and that's, you know, I mean, as we've discussed for a, over a year now, you know, when plants get too high in aluminum, that's the, that's the, I mean, that's the warning sign that things are going to go sideways. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, you know, manganese, sure, it can be high and, and in your case is extremely high, but when the aluminum starts to spiral out of control, you're just toast. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and so, you know, managing your metals, stress, uh, is a key piece to how you make um, the organic bonsai cultivation that you're, you know, is kind of in its, we'll call it nascent stage here. Yeah, infancy. Yeah, um, uh, sustainable and, and rep- replicable over the long term, right? And yeah. Because we've been testing, we've been testing samples that are coming from water sources that are have a far higher pH east of the Cascades. Interesting. And those are some of the samples that you recently tested. And I said, hey, the they're feeding with an ionic fertilizer and they don't necessarily have yet pest and disease issues, but these are trees that are only a year into cultivation. I really started hitting peak pest and disease susceptibility five years in. Right. right. So it's an accumulated. And for students of mine that have, you know, sort of followed the biogold methodology, everybody's looking for a solution to the disease and pest issues mm. because it's inevitable. Right. right. And in Japan, it's just an accepted, but. Well, let's go to Japan sometime. Well, but here's the <laughs> thing. Here's the thing. This is so interesting because we're saying, listen, water quality, bring your pH down. But if you're trying to utilize this system of an ex- acidic fertilizer with species that function mm. in a higher pH, that also explains the higher pH of the water is not creating the solubility and the uptake capacity of the metals. And so suddenly I'm not seeing the same aluminum and manganese content in these species that are being watered through what we would consider to be an inferior water source. Right. And that explains why Mirai with, uh, you know, slightly on the acidic side of neutral water source uh, and the acidifying components has a higher metal content in our, in our, in our bonsai based on the use of Akadama, which has high manganese and high aluminum with the correct acidity being an acidic situation. And I'm just like, like light bulbs are going off that I I have wondered what makes this place an exception, but then testing those, those higher water is clean. Yeah, it's clean. So, but so, so testing those higher pH scenarios, in other parts of North America and going and seeing where biogold or, an, and, and I don't want to defame biogold because it's a great fertilizer mm-hmm. if, if we understand how to use it. Yeah, and that's moderation, what it, sure. A, absolutely, right? But like understanding ionic fertilizers will eventually have this impact. How do we treat bonsai cultivation to be able to counter that, identify that, understand that? You know, the most important thing I think about apicals wrecks in the bonsai form if you're going to be able to assist somebody else is understanding that pH factor, you know, because you're going to look at their test of a Sierra juniper, Rocky mountain juniper yeah. from, you know, East of the Rockies or, or East of the Sierras or the Cascades. And you're going to say, well, there's not the same metal content, you know, so your rec is going to obviously adapt to that. But if you don't factor in the pH notion, 
and you drop that pH, maybe all of a sudden they do have a metal issue. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I mean, that's kind of the beauty of the of the wrecks is they respond to what nature's uh, given you, and then if you or you know the, the data rather, and then so the wrecks when they come out. Oftentimes, you know, yeah, there is going to be that nuance, but you know, if the plant's in a too low of a pH environment, it's going to always be showing those same symptoms, God, right? Amazing. And which is, which is, it's it's a beautiful thing, right? And and so, um, but the wrecks come straight out of your head. True. Are you the only person making wrecks uh, on your on your farm? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. No, I would not uh, <laughs> trust our. <laughs> you have a, a, a significantly valuable garden, so I have to do. Um, all the wrecks still for the the uh the more valuable clients that's that's incredible that's incredible so should i move away from akadama <laughs> in um, in 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 the pacific northwest of north america with well, with species no, coming from regions no, that are not no. necessarily acidic i think there's some experimentation that would be helpful to be done mm -hmm. um with that and i don't think that uh, you should exclude some of the things that maybe you had previously would have thought wouldn't be applicable, mm -hmm. um, such as, you know, like, you know, if you can find like the really pure humate chips and things like that, um, that can really increase CEC, um, that have a relatively, you know, slightly higher pH, um, things like that. Um, but again, it's going to vary depending on what species, right? Mm -hmm. And And so I do think there's an opportunity to, in, in, at least in your cultivation, to work with your soil media. Um, uh, it's going to take some time um, to, to really drill down and maybe end up with a few different um, blends. Um, one would be for your two needles, another one for your five needles, yeah. another one for, for uh, different types of juniper or, or others. Um, but I do think there's an opportunity there to, to, to dig in and, and make the cultivation a little bit... Um, um, maybe lower maintenance and more robust and uh, less um, less uh, uh, testing required um, if you if you did that. But that said, you know the testing can solve the problems when they when they come up, and that's the, that's kind of the great um, thing that we've you know uncovered working together. Is, yeah. You know you get in you know into a situation where you know we've got this expensive plant and we need to <laughs> can't lose it, right? Well, I mean, I uh, essentially. Essentially, and I'm happy to make this trade, but essentially the trade that I would need to make, you know, at Mirai to cultivate trees in Akadama, which again, I have not seen a, another amendment that can reduce the proportions of the inner node, the leaf and scale the roots to a degree that will support that oh, kind I'm of sure proportional density. Go, yeah, but if you go over to, uh, if you go over to the other type uh, uh, side of the Cascades, like there's this one farm that I work with that's got, they've got like 16 different soil types on one on one it's like a thousand acres or whatever but it's you know 16 different soil types that's a lot in mm -hmm. one area um and they've got a bunch of that uh yeah they got stuffed up there that's like high manganese and high calcium and really high clay and mm -hmm. you know some some interesting things so you know there's um you know there's some mining websites out there and i you know I give james a call he's super into into um uh, digging through different mines. James, James might be oh, yeah. the, might be the yeah. one. Well, I mean, but I, what I'm saying is, essentially, what it means is, and I'm happy to make this trade off, which is until I have a solution. You know, I, the whole reason that I went to Japan and put myself through my apprenticeship was to cultivate bonsai at the highest level. And, yeah, sure. And, and, and cultivate isn't meaning growing the biggest tree. Right. It's meaning growing the the most tightly scaled 
proportional tree. So what if you had a bonsai contest, like what what wins that contest? I don't, I don't know if there is such a thing, but no, I think there's. I think it becomes you know because it's a it's a it's an aesthetic execution. So there's some subjective thickness you know. and fullness and i think for a species every, every and... species has characteristics that are valuable you know and when you get the right combination of base the thickness of the base and its attachment to the ground and movement in the trunk and features of deadwood or you know age and then you get the right branching and you get the right nuances in the canopy i think that creates sort of your your like world-class bonsai you know and i think where we're where we're moving is we're seeing more influence the more time i spend in the native environment more influence of the fact that north america sure. happens to have yeah. the oldest trees in the world mm. and that aesthetic is not represented in bonsai so that's kind of where i am focusing we, do? we have the oldest trees in the world yeah hmm. i didn't know that are you serious yeah i don't know that. but you're like you're like <laughs> the plant guy yeah uh, yeah I, I, for food crops right oh so, man environment there's a lot i don't Dude, know this is about what i was saying science, though so. i was like bristlecone pines they got borers and you're like we need to go treat bristlecone pines with a bunch of cal and make a calcil and i was like <laughs> david save the bristlecones let's go yeah i mean you know like uh one of my uh one of the guys i took some classes from when i was really um starting to pick up steam and organic uh, consulting uh um i think he had he kind of posed that topic of you know crop dusting with mineral powders i thought that i always thought that was a novel uh, um novel use case you mm -hmm. know um and i think they actually used to do similar things like way back in the day you know 20s and 30s and things like that um you know where they you know um did certain certain types of uh, crop dusting but used mineral powders um which is you know essentially what you know wollastonite or what any of these other aragonite or yeah. lanardite or whatever all all are just different types of you know raw raw minerals that have been dug out of the ground when i was just in sweden um that we we happened to camp right next to the helicopter launch site and they had these big massive vats and they were liming the 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 lakes because of um sort of a algae bloom acidification like yeah. they were mm -hmm. they, they were they were preserving the the integrity of the lakes in these national parks fule fule where the old tico it's like a carbon dated you know in the running for oldest tree but it's like the parts under the ground are the oldest so it's like not mm -hmm. not the same as the bristle cones but anyways like we were just watching i was just like what are they doing and this this gentleman who ho hosted Taft and I, he was like, yeah, we've had to start doing this more and more over time because the lakes are acidifying faster, but they're trying to maintain the ecosystem and stuff. Right. And it's just like, geez. Right. And, 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 you know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, this is kind of the thesis behind apical, right? Is that, you know, through wrong cultivation of crops generally, um, through the wrong analysis of crops generally and broadly, you've got these, these global problems that are snowballing at, at a pace that you know people are trying to monetize the problems like yeah. it's, it's insane right yeah. some of the stuff that's happening and so you know i mean it's it's our you know it's my one personal attempt to try to put my finger in the dam you know right. um, um because you know if you actually really look at a lot of these problems like you know the ag thing is is significant right and 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 that breeds environmental problems and those environmental problems downstream are wildlife problems and then population it's it's all connected right and mm -hmm. and 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 so you know if we can you know rewind go back to the to the point where we where we went off track you know where you could 
you know, throw, I mean, if you could throw a dart, you'd start with, you know, maybe 80, 60, 80 years ago or something like that, where things really seemed like they started to really accelerate. Um, and then start there and try to work your, you know, work from that point even further backwards, right? So like, okay, well, what were those guys into, right? What were they working on? What kind of tech were they into? Mm -hmm. And and you have like, I mean, some of the, stuff, some of the tech that I've uncovered from the 1800s is mind-blowing. Yeah. I mean, it's it's insane. And, and I'm not just referring to agricultural tech. There's other things out there too, but, but specifically agricultural tech um, and the science that guys were into before they even really had a period working periodic table was crazy. Mm. Um, some of the fermentation and the enzymatic, um, uh, cultivation and, you know, I mean, they knew about iodine back in the twenties and thirties and how, and how key it was and selenium. And, you know, some of these other things are, you know, they're just now giving credence to, you know, almost a hundred years later. It's just, it's, it's, it's insane. Right. So, you know, by starting from that point, they went off track without carbon. Okay, that's organic method, right? So organic method recognize that. They've been preaching it for a lot long time. But to take that and not be satisfied with only that as the answer, right? We need to go further. We need to really drill down. Okay, yeah, base saturation is good, but eh, you got to tweak it slightly, right? And then okay, and then you you know walk a little further down the road like okay, yeah, well like plant tissue testing, you know, that's got some merits to it, like we were kind of just discussing outside. But then what about the sap testing, right? And holy cow, look at this, mm -hmm. like sap testing plus your modified CEC exchange plus, you know, you're using microbes from compost extracts or, or whatever, plus you're using, you know, maybe a botanical compound or, or something else. You start stacking plus, plus, plus all these other things that were already being used before ionic fertilizers were ever invented, right? And you use that as you're jumping off point and keep going further back. It's it's almost going to be, uh, you know, in my mind, it's a way to really to reel, reel the fishing line back yeah, in, sure. so to speak. Yeah, yeah, pull back. Mm -hmm. uh, real quick, what does iodine do for a plant? Um, well, so, you know, there's one study that I found, I think is at Oregon State University even, um, where it was anywhere from decreased yield, like where they increased iodine by, I don't know, somewhere 15 parts per million or something like that. And, and, it, and depending on the crop and they did it in a whole range of crops, uh, I think like 30 in the study or something. And, um, well, one, uh, anywhere from a 5% yield decrease to like a 760% increase in, in yield. With uh, the addition of iodine. With the addition of iodine at 15 parts per million, which is extremely low. It's a yeah. very, very low dose. But, you know, if you dig into iodine in the um, plant, um, just generally, there's huge, you know, metal detoxification and um, calcium um, translocation and wound healing and, um, you know, higher uh, defense molecule biosynthesis and mm. um, uh, osmotic stress specifically is another big one that it helps to deal with. Um, there's, you know, the list goes on. Um, and this why is kind of the... Why don't you put iodine in every rec for mine? Um, Can you overdo iodine? Well, yeah, I mean... Sounds pretty awesome. You know, I, I I don't like to overdo it, right? When we find five things wrong with a plant, I'd rather have you fix... Well, when we find nine things wrong with a plant, I'd rather have you fix five well than to, you know, fix 
those same five like mediocre and then try to fix the other four and maybe not actually yeah it actually not be successful so there's you know you have to make choices and and you know the 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 data sets are so telling and so precise and so complex that we don't like to um, negate any of the data or not take it into consideration or not apply it but there's just limitations in terms of application until you have you know you know, a robot or something that can actually respond to the data that mother nature is giving you. Uh, it's, you know, you have to, you have to draw some lines, mm-hmm. you know, just for, in terms of manageability. Makes it's, sense. it's, yeah, it's unfortunate because, you know, it's, it's really our goal to, to make these systems, you know, over time, even more, uh, more user-friendly and more implementable because the, pre- but precision science, like, you know, you're, you'll, you'll sacrifice the precision, if you try to make it, you know, smooth out the rough edges a little bit, which, you know, is trade-offs and, and, you know, in a situation like yours where you've got all these different species and, you know, different container sizes and they're high, extremely high dollar value, you can't miss, you need to walk the tightrope, you know? So, um, that's, that's the answer. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. (laughs) That makes sense. And then, uh, you know, where I wanted to go was to say, I recognize that there's a trade-off. It's a willing trade-off for me to not be applying chemicals. I've got to be exchanging the labor of that chemical application mm. for positive uh, calcium contribution to my soil. Yeah, it's, calcium. It's really the only, management. Yeah, it's the only way to get mm-hmm. to change the calcium magnesium ratio, which goes back to saying, hey, listen, you've got to have a water test, a soil test prior to growth occurring. Maybe a soil test after growth occurs, but I've found that that really didn't do much for me so much as underst- as, as having the SAP test of the yeah. foyer analysis. So you right. got water, soil pre, and then you've got your 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 SAP test of your foyer mass. Now, now, and the most important thing that Apical's been able to do is test what happens when you add these molecular compounds that James and other really talented minds are making to adjust plant nutrition. You guys understand how much needs to be applied to change the parts per million in the plant through your sap testing, right? Yeah, it's a critical tool, really. I mean, it's... <clears throat> it's when, amazing. When, when, it's amazing. You you know the plant has X. If we apply Y, it will equal Z. And in certain cases, not even just, you know, if we apply X, it's exactly how much of X and why and what that will lead to the next test in right. terms of in total parts per million, which is not 100% accurate, but there's some very startling um, correlations that we've seen over the years that are too, too, uh, um, too obvious to deny. Yeah. Well, and, and the one thing I think that's been shocking for me too is like uh, last, last fall when things were a little bit more um, sort of in 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 process maybe maybe just getting sure, started yeah, kind of getting rolling yeah uh there we had a rainfall and i remember texting you like hey it rained i was gonna foyer is that okay and you're like oh man i told you to foyer potassium and it just rained that would be a bad move don't do it and i'm like why and you're like the tissue is succulent after a rainfall because of the carbonic acid the potassium is going to drop the ph you could see that have a major impact on your tree and i was just like what and so i'm like looking at the knowledge that you've got to have to be doing this, because we just talked about a calcium-magnesium ratio being pivotal. We talked about the way that calcium offsets sodium. And you've got all of these little things, but then you have temperature, you've got relative humidity, 
You've got pH as a major player. Like you've got all of these things across all of these different species and in this, these different soils and waters. It's just like, it's a little overwhelming for the average person to be like, Super, yeah. okay, cool. We're going to be able to get our mind wrapped around this. I'm going to go feed with ionic fertilizers yeah, yeah, yeah. and use the, right. you, you know, use the, the bear product off the shelf from Home Depot. Yeah. I mean, you can it, see it why is. it's intimidating. Well, right, yeah, no, it, it, and I get it, right? I mean, I'm and I and I uh, and that's a, that's I constantly think about how can we make this system more user friendly? How can we build what we've learned into products? How can we make? But that's um, the that's the that's actually what created the problem. It was to a degree, but you know we see so many commonalities with you know just i mean the lack of carbon right i mean how many times do you hear soluble carbon like you got to be sick of hearing it right and um i i've actually come to be like hell yeah oh yeah because <laughs> yeah. it smells good yeah sure. it smells like i want to drink it it's like molasses you know right i mean and that's i mean well and that's you know i mean that's kind of the beauty of 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 you know what we're doing is that it's you know we're you know we've developed this relationship with both technology and mother nature that's mutually beneficial to both mm -hmm. which is you know is pretty rare i think you know obviously technology can you know sometimes really hurt nature and 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 vice versa right, right? and so you know this interface that we've got um and and trying you know we're constantly working on improving uh really just just provides that unique opportunity um, for for growers to have that experience where, you know, you can utilize, you know, some of the highest level of analytical technologies in a way that's extremely user-friendly, which is, you know, I think kind of the goal of a lot of, uh, uh, you know, people, right? They want, they, they see, yeah, you know, we'd want to be better. We want to, but we just can't, right? Mm -hmm. For whatever the limitation is. And so, you know, we just try to make it as accessible as possible. And, you know, we've had, I think you've, uh, there's a few of your cohorts that have come through and we've been um, uh, playing around with them. And it's funny because one or two of them has come through and dipped their toe in the water, did an analysis or two, and then disappeared off the radar. And then, and then they pop back on like, all right, yeah, now we really need this. Like a year ago, we kind of thought we might, but now we're seeing some things and we're really getting scared. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, um, we're just privileged, like I said, to be able to help. Well, it's really, uh, you know, I appreciate, I appreciate the way that you, um, you, you, you sort of help, helped me build confidence in the process. And, uh, you know, the big purpose of Mirai is not to, it's to pursue bonsai at the highest level, but at some point there needs to be a place that's working out these solutions. And we have a test group that is larger, you know, and of a higher quality. And I, and I think because of that, we're willing to work harder and try harder to figure this out. Mm -hmm. But the ultimate goal of, uh, of this place, Mariah is the definition of the word is the unobtainable future. It's, it's, mm. it's ever out of reach. Mm. It's once you achieve something, you've already, <laughs> there's already something. And I see, Apical. Well, similar, yeah. You I mean, have you have a mirai, yeah. It, <laughs> that's what an apical meristem it, is. So right? it's it growing, just keeps yeah. Growing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so. exactly. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, but like that—that that was really why it was so important to me to get it right and and to understand it before you and I talked. And it was important for you. I think you were really you had a lot of integrity about. Hey, I'm I, I'm not going to podcast with you. I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to. Let's figure out if this works for bonsai first. 
Yeah. And um, I think like the big thing for me is is bonsai is not just a singular it's not a singular species of plant in a nursery mix that you can duplicate anywhere because we've already talked about the species and their nuances and how that worked in Japan. Like I can't even tell you how excited I am that we just untied that. Cause I do think that it's correct. Mm-hmm. Cause I, cause even the ionic fertilizer didn't quite get there, but then the pH and the species ad- adaptation to the pH being yeah. native to Japan, I think that was the one, with, right. you know? And so it's like, Ooh, that well, was nice. Yeah. See, but that, you know, that opens <clears throat> up a huge new dimension of, um, you know, we'll call it bonsai. Uh, uh, you know, growth media um, engineering. Sure. I think, you know, species specific. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to date, that's been proportion of Akadama to pumice to lava. But it, it, it seems yeah. like, you know, if... But you may include one or two other things, right? Well, and maybe, maybe a, and maybe the... Tr- and again, I, I, I've been pursuing a substitute for Akadama since 2010 when I came back from Japan. Mm-hmm. Right, like, and 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 then we found Akadama in Oregon, and it's like, okay, so this is yours. But but there's nature. Um, I was talking with a uh, a consultant, one of the many, and he's like, "Hey, man, nature never never only creates one solution." And I was like, "Okay, that sounds like something a consultant would say." But <laughs> but you know, but also uh, it might be it might be true. You yeah, know? right. There may be another medium that scales the roots to the Mm -hmm. degree and Mm -hmm. like we've talked with people about worm castings and how that's happened and you know like but then it comes down to the food and the and the Uh, you know and then we went the the we went the soil food web (laughs) and biology and that was and that was you know that had its own nuances too and it's like i do have to say that the apical methodology you know as we were walking through the garden there's still we're still trying to figure things out right you told me it would take two years we're 18 months in the garden i have better back budding tighter more compact growth i've got shorter needles i've got tighter internodes i haven't applied a chemical in 18 months like it's pretty awesome man we need to get that on a testimonial at the shop one of these days that's fine but (laughs) but but i am recognizing through untangling the puzzle that with akadama in an acidic environment where the metals are going to be capable of being highly ingestible Mm -hmm. when the plant acts on the soil system that the 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 counter to that the accepted conduct is i need to continue to apply calcium raise the ph a little bit and you're thinking of dry additive solutions in addition to the liquid components yeah i think it know? just makes your i think it makes it a little bit more user friendly yeah. right and and if you had you know whatever 10% you know calcium clay, you know calcium phosphate clay or something like that in there i mean would that make all the difference in the world i don't know yeah um, would I it hold it's, its structure under the yeah, pressure or you know? f- yeah or 5% sure. and 5% and and you know some of those things depending on the on the source and the grind and some of that other stuff you may have something that's relatively durable that can you know, withstand, you know, a couple of years or more or longer of, of, uh, you know, being in the same place. Right. I mean, so, you're talking, you know, if you can give me eight to 10 years in a containerized environment, I'm psyched because I want root bound. But if, you know, and that's the thing, right. Is so, um, you know, the Akadama is already breaking down, right. You're seeing that in the, in an organic, you know, in, in the, in an organic, um, uh, to one degree or another, right. It, it's, if the top dressing works, if the top dressing works to buffer the impact of ultraviolet degradation and and water impact, right? Those are the two. Mm-hmm. And 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 the biological breakdown 
as we have balanced nutrition has slowed if not way stopped. slowed yeah, yeah for i sure. mean like i saw you looking at one that i've like been meaning to vacuum clean that's had a, a strong breakdown there's mm-hmm. a juniper over there yeah yeah um and that's one <laughs> that funny i like, like actually keyed in on you that you just one. like walked right up to it and i was like <laughs> fuck he's looking at that one it's all broken down and he's thinking here it is you know it's oh. like, but it's like we, we you know it's I, like water flowing downhill yeah yeah <laughs> but 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 here's the other thing akadama is not the same quality it used to be right that's right. not there's not a never-ending supply of but any you know all rocks weather right and all rocks weather to create soil and that's just a principle of basic soil science and yeah. so whether it's physical chemical or biological pathway that, that that breaks down or all three it will break down and when it does it'll release and so you know okay if we know that we're getting a little bit high on the release of manganese and magnesium or whatever aluminum in your in your media you know including a little bit of some chunky fo- i think it's worth an experiment i don't know if it's the right thing i'll try term, i'll try I, i'll try anything yeah i mean i think you know just to just to decrease a little bit of the um uh you know the management right because mm-hmm. it's you know it's we've we've had a bit of an adventure this year um you know some some pretty complex racks and um, you know, one or two um, trial and errors that we had to reverse course on to, in order to make sure that we got the right thing. But then once you did reverse course, it's like, holy shit, you yeah, know, like that was the right thing boom. now or now Changed we're there, everything. right? Yeah. So because that's, I mean, but that's part of, you know, when you're dealing with the number of species you have with no real target ranges, that's the hardest part, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's, you know, and the, the, the beauty of the apical system is even if you don't have target ranges, you typically have new leaf and old leaf that will that will help you to, um, you know, to, to guide you re- regardless of those target ranges. But <laughs> in your situation, we didn't even have that. So yeah, we didn't have the growth. We didn't have the growth to get the new leaf. Yeah, we didn't, leaf. So right. we just, we just, we were shooting, <laughs> you know, and now what, now what we've been providing is new leaf, old leaf, and that's creating a whole new level of, of information for Absolutely. you to be able to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's way better. It's, it's, it's way better. And, and as you see, the wrecks start to get more and more precise. And as they do, the, you know, your momentum picks up and, and the growth picks up and the, you know, the vigor and everything else. And, you know, that's the, you know, that's kind of the magic of the, of having, you know, qualitative understanding uh, combined with quantitative data. Well, and I think like my ultimate goal, because I'm looking at somebody that's going to have a, a, a one-off, you know, they have 25 trees in their collection. You got one Sierra juniper, you have one Rocky Mountain juniper, you have one Shimpaku juniper. Right. And then they're like, I don't have enough foliage to test with David. I, I, I my, my tree is declining. What do I do? My motivation would be to be like, okay, where are you at in the country? You know, what does your water look like? What's your soil composition? What have you been fertilizing with? You know, and what are the factors? What what is happening with the tree? Just to be able to say, okay, you know, m- maybe, maybe you could add these things to stop the decline. Hopefully, get enough foliage to understand the nuances. Like, because it's it's hard to tell exactly from the tree's physical is, expression. Yeah. Yep. And you've even told it's me always this. That. It's always like that. You you the more. You think you can do that, the less you should try. Right. <laughs> so what I'm saying is don't so what I'm saying is I mean, like, what do you do if you can't test? How do you how do you You I, have to make the best educated guesses you can? Exactly. So um, so but I I think like and, and watch it and be prepared to reverse course immediately. But now you know that Akadama now now that we've spent this much time with this homogenized soil across the bonsai practice. Right. 
and we understand its behavior and its susceptibility under acidic and basic conditions, and you have looked at tests and a, and a large number of tests with a consistent feeding habit of a common commercially available fertilizer in the boneside practice, like the amount of information of the testing over the past 18 months that we know about bonsai yeah, right. is, is significant monumental. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. It's monumental. Yeah. And that already gives, that already gives us a leg up on helping people, you know, and, and that, that, that justifies the 200 plus samples that we've done. Cause right. that, that has been a lot of labor on your part. It's been a very big investment on our part to try and figure this out. Yeah, no, I, I, um, I admire your commitment and I admire the, the uh, the level of uh, intensity with which you've attacked the problem. <laughs> I mean, you guys have been you've been pretty tenacious for for you know for you know over a year now, and and it shows, right? And 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 you're reaping the benefits at this yeah. point, right? And and you know we we kind of say you know do your comparison sampling, right? You have to do comparison sampling. Like comparison sampling is one of the fundamental. If you don't comparison sampling, if you don't believe in comparison sampling, just 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 go home now, go back to to whatever you're doing, hide under a rock, and hopefully you don't get poisoned to death. What's right? comparison sampling? You know, new leaf to old oh, leaf. Oh, new leaf to old leaf. Deep yeah. deep soil to shallow soil, sick plant to healthy plant. Gotcha. You know, wild plant to cultivated plant. Yeah. Um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. One Sierra to, to Rocky Mountain, five needle to two needle. Yeah. So comparison sampling is it's it's a key component to what we do. And so you know, you know, you do your comparison sampling, test at prescribed intervals, uh, follow the recommendations, mm-hmm. reap the benefits. Yeah, right. It's yeah. it's pretty straightforward uh, at this point. You know, our system is robust enough to handle most most of what gets thrown at it. Now, like you said, there are those times where you don't have a complete um, data set. You've got a new um, crop or species that you're and you're and you don't know where this one should end up and so you kind of got to f- f- you know sail blind a little bit it's like it's really like driving in pea soup fog or a thick fog and you have to be able to like slam on the brakes yeah and, and literally go do a 180 at any minute um uh, because if you see those qualitative indicators going off like oh the necrotic tip or something turned yellow or you know, and it started to look worse from an application, you have to be able to immediately go back and apply the exact opposite thing um, to come back and counterbalance it. Because you get into these situations where you're like, ah, it could be this, but it really might be this. And I, we just don't know, right? Mm-hmm. We know it's, it's, it's either door A or B, mm-hmm. but we don't know if you need to go through door A or B. And it so like the yellow subalpine fur, we applied mm. the calcium, it turned yellow. Mm. We applied the, the potassium it's only gotten worse. Mm. What does that mean? I mean, I'll sample it. I'm going to send, yeah, I'm gonna, I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna send you three if, sub-alpine If I've samples. never sampled it, it's... Never sampled yeah, sub-alpine. if I've never sampled it, then we really just don't know. Yeah. My guess is um, uh, uh, you're probably looking at another, just an overall toxicity um, um, that's an excess. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, it may require more carbon than anything else to deal with. Yeah. Um, that could... That's probably what it might be but i again you know like you saw there was some when we started applying some of the the soluble carbon with the amino acid nitrogen um and then you hit that with the calcium that seemed to be as close to you know the um like the bio gold sort of approach right Uh Um, when we started doing that so you know like i said the last time i was out here you know you want those like 
you know, if something doesn't look right, you go right back to that basic, right? And if it still doesn't look right, then you you pull the calcium out and you just go with yeah. you know, the straight carbon and amino acid for for a little while and try to get some growth. But yeah, it's t it's tough to guess, and I hate doing it. Um, yeah. The more I do it, the the more I. I'm like, man, you have your own lab. You're like, Stop you doing, doing it. <laughs> yeah, like that's just dumb. Like, well, and it's, it, don't it, be lazy, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's like the whole it's like the whole food bio gold approach, right? It's like it's like because now you're using the amino acid, which is more complex nitrogen source. You're using you're adding carbon. I do think, you know, what I was gonna tell you about bio gold is 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 you know, it's chicken manure derivative mm -hmm. with a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. But uh but there's but, a lot of water my my guys were just uh testing some uh chicken manure in the lab today for uh moisture holding capacity and soluble carbon content i mean it was off the charts yeah like off the charts and you know it's just another one of those like ah, mother nature well it, it goes farther though the 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 bio gold um chicken manure was sourced from egg laying chicken poultry mm. farms yeah. not, not not from meat not, poultry right, sure, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and then yep. and then when you go a little bit farther if you look at the sort of japanese methodology of doing anything they're going to be feeding the highest quality to these egg laying mm, chickens. They probably feed a lot of calcium to the chickens. They feed a lot of calcium yeah. in alfalfa based diet. Oh, there you go. And so all of a sudden you have this like magical oh, component of a lot tricontinol of tricontinol too. Yeah. So there's like, so now that's a, that's a good one. Now, when you think about the quality of the calcium and bio gold, mm. it, it's, it really is a high quality calcium that's creating the benefits on that level. Interesting. But, so another, uh, you know, this is why it's good to chat. Um, your your another um, light bulb went off as you're talking about alfalfa. Um, some of the inherent nature of alfalfa has you know major biostimulant properties to it. Um, the compound typically known as tri tricotinol. Mm. Um, if you're, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I'm not you, familiar with not, the compound, but I'm familiar with alfalfa having some magical characteristics. Yeah, that's that's the one that most people talk about. Um, uh, so, you know. Um, interesting uh there's now you know you can get you can buy it off the shelf that mm -hmm. um but i didn't realize that that may be a key component to the stress um you know the the stress management in in traditional culture yeah yeah me yeah and and biogold is one of many you know sort of broadly produced fertilizers in japan specific for bonsai but the tricontinol is very well known for um uh multi-branching and you know you take one oh. take one uh you know you spray it on on cherries at bloom and you go from you know you know one one flower to 20 and you know things like that so you know similar to thing like the blue gold does but like they you know there's a blue gold uh they call it tri-res and that has a tricontinol in it um you, they, they we put might want we want to play yeah yeah we should play with bit. that a little bit yeah maybe i i feel like um I feel like I think bio bio gold also has quite a bit of uh, humates in it, humic mm, acid. Sure. So if you're talking yeah. about if you're talking about the chicken manure having a high carbon holding capacity, and all of a sudden mm -hmm. that's the backbone of it, and then you've got humates in it as well with the CEC addition and carbon right. you know, components, three hundred or whatever. It's like a pretty pretty legitimate, you mm -hmm. know. The, but the ammonium nitrogen, you know, over time, when when you came and looked at the plants and we were talking about you know, oh it was insane i'd never seen that high of ammonium and i thought it was wrong right i mean i sampled i think you know when i think when i first the the day i met you i believe uh when you came to the shop that one day uh, you know i was in the middle of about 15 different things and i just like i think we had just analyzed like one sample and the ammonium was just 
just astronomical. And that was the very first thing I took. And I was like, whoa. Uh, <laughs> She's coming in hot. Yeah. yeah you, guys, hot. you guys making cleaning solution over there? Or did you guys, did you guys <laughs> spill, a, spill a bottle? But that wasn't, that's not necessarily BioGoal's fault. I mean, that was also in the middle no, it might of have been September. An application and, you ah, know. Was, everything was wrong at that point. <laughs> you know, I was just like, I was just grabbing for straws. I yeah. was like, holy cow, you know, but. But um, maybe we should uh, brand some life preservers for our uh, for our winter merch. Exactly, <laughs> or floaties, apical floaties, or that, something. That would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, just a just a just a really nice just a really nice pointed hat. Oh, that's that's a. Uh, um, we're working on some some merch. Actually, speaking of which, I dropped. Uh, there's a couple T-shirts and a hat downstairs. Yeah, I saw you carrying that around. I was like, do I get that or what? Yeah, you know, yeah. it's for you. Uh, although, although uh, our sizes are limited, so it may it may they may not fit you. But that was all we had. So that's great. Um, we have some new stuff. We do. We typically do merch runs. Uh, you know, during the holiday season. Yeah. So, um, yeah, maybe come down and play around with some soil blends here in the next month or so. That would be great. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, so if people wanted to get a hold of you, people wanted to to test and whatnot, how do they go about how do they go about doing that? Yeah, so our website, you know, apical-ag.com, you know, www.apical-ag.com. Um, or you could look for, you know, it just Google search apical sap analysis or apical sap testing and we'll come up. Um, apical crop science is the name of the business. Um, yeah, we've uh, we got a website, it's pretty robust. Uh, actually, we're just about to launch our 2.0 version of the site. There's some really incredible upgrades. Like um, I, some of which I don't even want to get into because it's just it's a whole other another topic. But there's some really exciting features. Obviously, with what we've already built, but with with what we're calling Apical 2.0, um, we're really ready to 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 um, uh, to put the pedal down in terms of implementation of regenerative and organic systems for a wide range of crops in highly technical environments um, with precision. So yeah, uh, www um, uh, apical-ag.com um, or info at apical-ag.com and our phone number um, 503-479-8407 for those of your listeners that don't have the internet, which we have they're, they're, a wide they range. They exist. Of, well, believe it or not, we have uh, a huge uh, Amish client base. Oh, okay. Um, and they don't have access to the internet, so they mm -hmm. get... Uh, you know, um, Pony Express or Courier or uh, fax, in some cases, fax machine to their neighbor or nice. um, uh, whatever. So we, we definitely have learned over the years to work with folks that aren't tech, aren't tech enabled. Yeah. Um, even though our, our platform is, you know, as you see, you can walk the field and it's look amazing. At, yeah. It's, 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 fun. It's, it's impressive. It's impressive. I mean, we have so many tests on, on the platform now that without it being what it is, it'd be tough to manage. Have you played around with any of the uh, uh, chart building? Yeah. Um, yeah, I have to be honest with you. Yeah, I, most people I, don't. It's, I haven't. I rarely do myself, but it's it's so cool when you do. Yeah, I mean, just you know, you can go through one day, you drinking a beer or whatever, you know, um, you can just pull up the build charts and just go down through your thing and just be like, okay, click potassium levels, and then click the five cultivars that you that you have in question, and it'll and it'll chart them all next next to one another. Um, you know, very rapidly or calcium. Of the tests that you have from, yeah, yeah, yeah. from us? Yeah, yeah, Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, yeah. It's a very, it's a, it's a very super interesting. It's actually super user-friendly and, and, um, and, and, and very quick and easy to use. Um, but uh, it kind of gets lost in the shuffle. You know, there's so much data flying around. You know, people are in high-pressure situations. So, you know, oftentimes we, I mean, 
we're the we're the most guilty of it of, of all like we just don't have time to to really stop and and take it all in and really understand like what we've built but there's um that that charting feature there's there's uh, quite a quite a lot to the website obviously the products um you know you've you've gotten to use some of the products and and you've seen the the you know literal ability to turn turn plants around it's and, pretty it's it's pretty monumental yeah, yeah now we have enough growth where we can we can sample get a rec uh, apply and then send a test in again, which is, what, yeah. which is, which is exactly what we're going to do with that Scott's pine down on the workshop cool. that I was saying had those metrics. Yeah. We'll get it cleaned up. You know, I mean, um, we're yeah. at the, we're at the tail end of the season though, you know, like over the, over the, like I pulled, I took the foot off the gas and, in, in the, in for a month in the summer, kind of the worst time. And yeah. that was like, that's when the plants are really pulling. Yeah. Which I sure. didn't, I didn't, you know, this is so, it's so freaking fascinating but it's also affirming of like the the common physiology that i i i am aware of and then i'd like kick myself like gah you know but yeah. like what do i do over the winter time what can people do i mean we're we're headed in the winter in northern hemisphere is there anything people can do to help their plants you know i mean bonsai cultivation i'm not super uh really uh, well versed in the seasons i'm getting a, a little bit of my my feet under me um you know obviously um with winter uh, challenges, you know, you think about, well, okay, so you're gonna have winter stress points, right? So like, you know, summer stress points are one thing, winter stress points are different, right? And so, you know, your frost tolerance, you know, your sensitivity, root health, mm -hmm. you know, drainage, aeration, you know, some of those things like in, in our environment, we're going to get tons and tons and tons of rain. So, you know, you want to make sure that the plants have ability to drain properly, that you know, whatever physiological things you can do there. Vacuum all the broken down aquifer. Not, I mean, but whatever. No, but like, yeah, whatever. But, yeah. but last year we did some carbon. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Cal yeah. Calcium over the winter time, probably well, not. So, you know, ironically enough, so, so the, the winter is the only time of the year that plants actually can detox. So if you've got um, a detox process that you're trying to induce in the plant and that's, you know, relatively unsaid but that's a lot of what we're doing out there right is we're detoxifying the metal stress or the mm -hmm. sodium or whatever because we have excesses yeah 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 so we're detoxing those and so in the winter time you know you can work with mother nature over a long-term sort of detoxification pr program right where you really flush you know any soluble aluminum and and you know manganese out of that soil profile that's going to be in excess and rebalance and so you know you can still treat it's a better time to treat the soil with um detoxifying agents and treat the plant with fortifying agents okay. right so you know like the silica i mean you can't go wrong i mean that's a, such a such a universal product right it just it really helps um but you know if you're spraying something you know if you're going out there if you have to deal with a bug or whatever use that silica um, it always helps um and then you know try to detoxify the root zone so soil samples be more effective than foyer samples over the winter or you still want foyer samples? Because I, I do want to understand, you know, I'm going to have trees in the greenhouse that are not going to be experiencing the flushing factor of the yeah, rain. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be more species nuanced, right? Whether whether which one, but it's a good time to, to you know, if you're going to be doing any repotting or or, or what have you to, to, you know, to nudge those soils in a, in a positive manner and, and really treat the roots healthy, you know, whatever you're going to try to do to, 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 to create root health. Mm -hmm. um, gotcha. Uh, yeah. Cause what happens in the spring is everything grows boom right out of the gate. Right. Yep. And then as soon as the first stress point hits, right. 
all the bombs start going off. Yep. And so if you've like if you've done your job well over the winter, you should just coast through that. But if you've got issues, they'll be problematic and they will come home to roost as soon as those <laughs> as soon as those first hot days hit. It's not I mean, you know, we do so much work in the local crops here, you know, berries and grapes and things like I mean, it's amazing to see you know, after doing this for so many years, I know like, oh man, I know it's 80, you know, it's 85 today, 95 tomorrow, 103 on Tuesday, man, like my phone, like I'm going to, I don't want to answer it. Cause it's just going to be, you know, okay. I got mites. Okay. I got aphids, you know, okay. You know, root disease starting to show up over here, right. you know, cause all the things that growers didn't want to do that were recommended typically all come home to roost at that time. Uh -huh. And, and it's like, you know, I've literally had guys call me and say, hey, you, you know, you told me I was going to have problems like six weeks ago and I didn't do anything about it. And now I have problems. Okay. <laughs> Silence on the whoa, other whoa, end of the what line. Do, what do I do <laughs> yeah, now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, sorry, I'm, I'm really sorry, but our, our, our time machine SAP analysis module is not actually active yet. Right. You know, it's, we're about two years out on that. Right. You know, we, ha we haven't put in the AI to be able to... <laughs> Yeah. move forward in time yeah we're, we need we need higher power mirrors and <laughs> something what do you do in your what do you have first of all do you have free time and if you do what do you do i ski a lot in the winter oh yeah nice. that's my that's my uh that's kind of my thing Great. Um, yeah i'm a down i've been a downhill skier since i was about seven and uh yeah i try to ski as many as many times as i can during the winter um, during the summer, I don't have a ton of free time. I, I work a extreme, insane hours during the summertime. And, uh, um, and I, do, I mean, I do a little bit of gardening here and there and, you know, spend time with my, with my family, but, uh, skiing is really my, my thing. You guys grow your own food? Uh, yeah, yeah. We, so we have a, uh, just a couple acres in, uh, like 15 minutes north of my shop there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we have a, we have a decent sized garden and, you know, we're growing, good amount of our own food right now and we do some trades for some you know some of our uh friends that that grow some meat and eggs and things like that so nice. um yeah i mean for years you know, it's funny that that image that james <laughs> described to you was really not that far from the truth right i mean it was um you know fringe and you know i definitely did uh farm barefoot and whatnot but back then i mean it was i mean it was almost 100 percent right at that mm -hmm. point like growing you know i mean i would fish hunt once in a while or, you know, work with a, a friend that hunted and um, uh, grow just absurd amounts of food that would then get traded for pasta or whatever, bread and eggs or whatever that, that wasn't grown because we just had just copious amounts of it all the time. Mm -hmm. So um, that lifestyle and like the strength that that built, like within like my, you know, just physical body was, you know, you can feel it, right? Let's when you get the like you're saying, you that simultaneous sort of, you know, detoxification and fortification simultaneously. It's a really powerful thing. Um, it's life changing, really, for for people, for plants, for the environment, for, um, uh, for for really just life, generally speaking. And and you know, that's I think ultimately that's what we do unconsciously, right? And that's what plants do in nature, mm -hmm. na you know, naturally or have the ability to do, but in, in agricultural and cult cultivated environments, they're kind of stuck. Yeah. Um, or, or humans in a, <laughs> you know, an urban environment, right. you know, get kind of stuck, right? right. Not enough detoxification, overabundance of, you know, potential toxins and feeding and opportunities to overfeed. And, um, and, you know, we all need to just kind of 
you know, detox and, and then, and then fortify like what's, you know, kind of gone, gone out of balance. And, and it's, it's amazing what happens when, when you do that sort of thing. Dude, thanks for making the time, man. Yeah, I appreciate this it. This is yeah. awesome. Yeah, thanks for having it me. Was, it's, it's fun. I don't know that I've ever done a podcast before. There you go. <laughs> well, the, we we have officially. I'm I'm honored that we would be your first. Yeah, no, I um, it's been a real pleasure. Obviously, coming to to the to the garden today, and also just been working with you guys um, yeah. for the last year. I mean, your team is great. Um, they get along really really great with our team, uh, who obviously is great. Uh, can't praise them highly enough. Fantastic. And met, yeah, you've met them a bunch of times and um you know we've learned significant amount from working with you and uh it's, yeah just excited to see where this goes in the future so yeah, yeah thank you yeah likewise likewise yeah. the journey continues awesome all right thanks dude all right thank you ryan take care